Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 13, verses 13 through 43. But as we come to listen to God's word, let's pray and ask for his blessing, that we might hear and understand what he says to us. Let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth, that we may embrace and ever hold fast. Father, you are telling us about the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we hear it and believe it. We ask in his name. Amen. Acts 13, verses 13 through 43. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God had promised to Israel a Savior, Jesus. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but no, but... Behold, after me is coming, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them. By condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 
But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he, also, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, don't come up and join me. Good to see everybody. Come on, find a spot. All right, get, guys, this is, uh, this is something maybe you can identify with. When, when I was a kid, Saturday mornings were for cartoons, right? Bugs Bunny fooling Elmer Fudd again and again. Wile E. Coyote failing to catch the Roadrunner and falling again and again. And... And back then, there was no YouTube, there was no internet streaming services, and so my brother and I would wait in front of the TV, waiting until 9 o'clock in the morning for Looney Tunes to get started. And, and until then, do you know what was on TV? It, it seemed like it was on every single channel, all four of them. <laughs> it was infomercials. Do you, do you guys know what infomercials are? Uh, they are commercials, like one commercial for one thing, that lasts for 30 minutes. It's like a whole show that's a commercial. Some guy is trying hard to sell you some new oven that cooks a turkey in five minutes, or a knife that'll cut through pennies for just three easy payments of $19.99. For 30 minutes, they have these demonstrations about how great these things are. But I think 
deep down they kind of know that what they're selling can't be all that great because they keep trying to add extra stuff into the deal. They say, but wait, there's more. And they promise that if you call, if you buy it in the next 30 minutes, then they're going to throw in an extra knife at the same price. They're making all of these promises that are, they just seem too good to be true, all while making me wait to watch my cartoons. You can tell I'm still a little mad about that. Well, guys, all through the Old Testament, God's people were waiting. Not for cartoons. They were waiting for the kingdom of God to arrive. And God was promising to them all sorts of blessings when he would come. He was promising rescue from their enemies and land that would produce all sorts of good food. And, and he was promising them big families and everything that they needed to provide for them comfortably. God was telling them about how great it is to live in his kingdom with him as their God and with them as his people. And, and we know that, that God's kingdom began to arrive in the person of Jesus. He is the one who is bringing all of the blessings to God's people. But in, in what we just read, Paul says that what God has delivered in Jesus is even greater than any of the blessings that he had promised long ago. In a better and beautiful and true, but wait, there's more kind of moment, God is saying that through Jesus, he is giving his people everything promised, plus something that you and I desperately need, the forgiveness of sins. Then and today, people need to be set free from our sins, and that is not, that is not something that you and I can do on our own. Even if we obey God's law perfectly from now on, you and I can't do anything to make up for the ways that we've broken it in the past. But Jesus sets us free. Because he obeyed God perfectly in his life, and then he died to pay for all of our sins. And both his perfect life and his death, both of them are counted as yours and mine when we simply receive Jesus. <coughs> when we simply receive Him and rest in Him as God's gift to us. You see, guys, our God always does more, way more, than all we could ask or imagine. And because He is infinitely better than some disappointing infomercial, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks, guys. You can go back. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, <clears throat> have before us uh, this morning the, the account of Paul's first sermon, uh, not, his, not the first sermon that he's, he's preached, uh, of course, we've seen Paul preaching throughout uh, the book of Acts, uh, really, really ever since he uh, was converted in chapter 9, he has been preaching and teaching, but this is the first time that Luke records for us uh, one of his sermons, and it happens in a place called Pisidian Antioch. 
Uh, in the previous passage, uh, we had the account uh, of Barnabas and uh, Paul's ministry on the island of Cyprus, the, the first stop on their first missionary journey. And in verse 13, we see uh, Paul and his companions setting sail from there, from Paphos on the western end of Cyprus, and coming to Perga in Pamphylia, back on the mainland of Asia Minor, what is uh, today known as Turkey. And from there, uh, they went on uh, inland to Antioch of Pisidia. Now, uh, note, this is not the same Antioch from which they were sent out, uh, Antioch in Syria, but this is Antioch in Pisidia. It's just like uh, we have a, a town called Greenville in just about every state in uh, the country. You know, there's a, there's a Greenville in Tennessee, and there's a Greenville in every state that touches Tennessee. Uh, so you have to be specific when you're talking about uh, Greenville. That's how it was with Antioch. I think there were something like 12 towns in the Roman Empire uh, with that uh, name. And so here we have Antioch in Pisidia. That is where uh, Barnabas and Paul end up. And we're told that at this point, as they are making their way there, John uh, leaves them and returns to uh, Jerusalem. And of course, at this point, nothing more is said about his departure. We're not told why uh, he left. We're not given a judgment of his, of his leaving. Uh, but we know that this is going to become a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas uh, later on as they debate whether or not to, to take John with them on their second missionary journey. It's actually going to end up uh, with them each going their separate ways, Barnabas taking John Mark with him uh, and Paul choosing Silas as his new uh, companion. But we'll deal with all that when we get to it at the end of chapter 15. Here, as I said, the focus is on Paul's first sermon, uh, his sermon there in the synagogue in uh, Antioch. We're told that on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, which again would have been the, the normal liturgy followed in the synagogue, uh, this, is, this is how the synagogue worship uh, service worked. Uh, there was always this, this reading from the law and then a, then a reading from uh, the prophets. And then, uh, as we see here, the rulers of the synagogue would, would ask if, if there was a rabbi present or if there was a, a visiting teacher, uh, if they had any word for the congregation from these texts. And that's exactly what we see here. We're, we're told that the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of an encouragement, any word of exhortation for the people, say it. This was, as I said, the, the standard practice, and Paul is more than happy to oblige. As we're told in verse 16, that he stood up and motioning with his hands, he began to preach. And it is that sermon that then takes up really the remainder of this section as we hear Paul's sermon in the synagogue. And, and that sermon can really be divided into uh, three parts. First, he speaks of salvation prepared. Then he speaks of salvation proclaimed. And finally, he er, uh, ends with a warning. And I want to follow that same basic outline this morning. And so let's, let's begin by, by considering what Paul tells us about salvation prepared. We, we see this uh, mostly in the, the first paragraph there, verses 19 through 25. And the thing that, that Paul wants us to see, the thing that he, he drives home again and again as he, as he recounts uh, Israel's history, is that salvation has been prepared by God. We see this in the way that he uses verbs through, throughout the section. Notice, almost every verb takes God as uh, the, the actor. God is the one who is, who is doing the work. It was God uh, who chose our fathers, we're told. 
It was God who then made them great or exalted them during their stay in Egypt, a a euphemistic way to refer to their slavery. God then led them out of Egypt with uplifted arm. It was God who rescued them. And it was God who destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan and gave that land to the Israelites as an inheritance. It was God who gave them judges. It was God who gave them a king. And after that first king had been removed, it was God who raised up David, a man after his heart who would do his holy will. And it was from this man's offspring, from David's line, that he brought to them a Savior. And so again, from from the very beginning of the sermon, we we see Paul presenting us with, with God as the main actor in the story of salvation. From the very beginning, it has been God who has been preparing salvation for his people. And I don't want us to to miss the significance of that. That God is the actor means that that salvation is God's idea. Salvation is is God's initiative. This this morning, our our confession of faith uh, uh, focused in on the, the sin and the misery of our condition after Adam's fall. But remember, God did not leave us in that condition. He did not leave us in the the misery of our sin. But it was his idea to provide a Savior. It was his idea uh, to, to make salvation available to his people. Our God is not a God who is reluctant to save. On the contrary, he has been driving the process from the beginning. And that means that we do not have to persuade God to make salvation available to us. Have you ever been in that position? Have you ever been in a, in a position where you needed to persuade someone to help you? You needed to, to convince them to, to use whatever it was that they had, whatever resources or time or, 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 or connections that they had that, that you needed? Have you ever been in a position where you needed to convince someone to come to your assistance. Well, often people think in those terms about their relationship to God. They need to convince him. They need to persuade him to, to come and, and, and save them, to come and deliver them from their peril. We, we think that, that God is somehow reluctant. But Paul here, recounting the history of, of, of Israel, makes it abundantly clear that God is not a reluctant Savior. If he were, we, we would be lost. We would be utterly without hope because what could we possibly do to persuade God uh, to make salvation available to us? I mean, we, we can't prove ourselves to him. We can't, we can't prove that we're worthy because we're not. You know, even when we put our best foot forward, it is, it is woefully inadequate and it's, and it's hiding all of the less than desirable reality about us. It's what we confessed this, this morning, that, that listen, there, there is no one who is righteous, and that includes us. We are sinners. We are rebels against the king. We are not worthy of his salvation. And so not only can, uh, so we can't possibly prove ourselves to him, but not only can we not prove ourselves to him, uh, nor can we offer him anything. We can't buy him off. He's God. He is the the maker of heaven and earth. He he is the one who has called all things into existence. What do we possibly have that he needs? Everything we have was a gift from him in the first place. 
And so we, we can't prove ourselves to him, and we, we can't offer him anything. And so if we were in a position of needing to persuade him, we would be utterly without hope. But we're not. We're not hopeless. Why? Because salvation is God's initiative. For his own good pleasure, for, for his own reasons, out of his own steadfast love, he chose to prepare salvation for his chosen people. That is the wonder of his grace. Salvation was his idea while we were yet his enemies. And he was willing to do what it took to, to bring that salvation about in the fullness of time. But there, there's even more to see here because, because not only do we see that we don't have to persuade God to offer us salvation, we also see that we cannot dissuade him from offering us salvation. We, 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 can't, we can't turn off his, his desire to, to save. We, we see this in three separate snapshots from, from Israel's history. First, notice what he says in, in verse 18. Again, speaking of, of Israel, Paul says that for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, some of you may have translations that, that say he carried them. You know, and that, that reflects the, the language of, of, of some of the Psalms, and it's, it sounds a lot nicer than he put up with them. You know, when we, when we put up with somebody, uh, it, it doesn't sound all that loving. But, but put up with is actually the, the, the more attested reading. It's right that that is the, uh, the, the reading that the ESV goes with because that is what the text says. And while it doesn't sound loving at first glance, I, I want you to see that it actually teaches us something important about God's love. It teaches us that our faithlessness doesn't dissuade God from following through on his plan to offer salvation to his people. His love is steadfast, even when his people are not. Remember why the people had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They, they were wandering because they refused to trust God to, to bring them into the promised land. They, they refused, even though he had already brought them up out of Egypt, even though he, he had, he had uh, met them at the, the mountain, even though he had fed them on the, the journey, uh, even though he had supplied them abundantly with water, even though God had again and again shown himself able to save, shown himself able to lead, uh, the people, when they got to the promised land, feared the Canaanites more than they feared the Lord, and they refused to go in. And that generation had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Paul says that, that God put up with them during those 40 years. He did not abandon them. We see the same thing in Paul's reference to the 40 years of Saul's reign. Remember again why God gave them Saul in the first place. Because the people wanted a king like all the other nations. They were tired of having God as their king. They, they were tired of being different. They wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else around them. And so God set Saul over them, the king that they thought they wanted, the king that they thought they needed. And again, he put up with Saul for 40 years. And then once he removed him, raised up a king, the king they really needed, a, a king after his own heart who would do all his will. And finally, we, we see it again. We see God's steadfast commitment to his plan and Paul's description of those who, who lived in, in Jerusalem and their leaders in the next paragraph. They didn't recognize their Savior because they didn't understand the prophets, Paul says. And they actually had him put to death even though they knew that he was innocent. 
But again, God used their evil for good. Despite their evil intentions, they carried out what was written about their Savior in the prophets. And God brought his plan to completion through, even through their sin. Again, time and again, God proves that he is faithful, even when his people are not. But through it all, God brings his plan to completion. To, to, he brings his purposes to come to pass. And in this, we see that, that God cannot be dissuaded from, from making his salvation available to his people. And that, that is good news for us. It is good news for us because like the people of Israel in the Old Testament and, and like the, the people of Israel in, in Jesus' day, we have done much to dissuade God from offering us salvation, if that were possible. But he will not be dissuaded. Salvation is his initiative. It is his idea. And he is going to prepare salvation for his people regardless of their faithfulness or faithlessness, whatever the case may be. And he continues to make that salvation available to us today because God is a God intent on saving. Today for us is a day of salvation. This is the point that that Paul makes clear in the, the second part of his sermon. After saying that God has, has prepared salvation for his people, God, Paul goes on to say that that salvation is now proclaimed in Jesus' name. Look again at, at verse 26. Look again at what uh, Paul says there. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He says, we are now hearing it proclaimed. This this salvation is now being announced. He says this again in in verse 32. Look there, he says, and we now bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, even as it says in the second psalm. And and he says it again in in verse 38. Look Look there. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And so the salvation that was being prepared is now being proclaimed. It's being proclaimed because because salvation has been accomplished. It has been accomplished in Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead. In the Old Testament, uh, we have have this, this promised salvation, but now we have in Christ an accomplished salvation. It's, It's what he says there. He says, now... God has done what he promised to do. He has fulfilled all of his promises by raising Jesus from the dead. And, and to show this, to drive this point home, he, he quotes three psalms there. First, he, he says, that, uh, he says uh, in quoting Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, think of the context of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks of of God's absolute intention to to sit his son upon the throne. The the nations may may wave their fist in God's face and say, we will not be ruled by you. But but God just laughs and says, no, my anointed, he will reign. This echoes the the point that, that Paul makes in Romans 1 when he says that, that by his resurrection from the dead... Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. It was was at the moment of his resurrection 
that he was enthroned as the Savior. It's not that he became the Son at the resurrection. He was always the Son. It was the Son who who came into the world and, and took on flesh. But at the resurrection, the Son became the Son of God with power to save. You see, Jesus' death was necessary. Jesus' resurrection was was necessary. We we see this in the Father's silence in the garden when, when Jesus says, if there's any way, take this cup from me. But the Father does not take the cup because the Father's plan is to bring salvation to his people. And that salvation cannot come unless the sacrifice is offered, unless the propitiation is made. And Jesus is that propitiation. Jesus is the sacrifice that brings atonement. It's through his blood that we are reconciled. And by his resurrection, our salvation is sealed. As Paul says, he was delivered up for our sins and raised again for our justification. It is in the resurrection that, that salvation is accomplished. It is in the resurrection that, that, our, that death is vanquished and the curse is lifted. It's why he can go on and, uh, to quote Psalm 55 uh, and to say that by the resurrection, Jesus has secured for his people the holy and sure blessings of David, the, the promised kingdom, the, uh, the kingdom of, of, uh, of eternal life, the kingdom of an incorruptible inheritance, this, this kingdom of undefiled glory, of, of righteousness and peace forever. This kingdom has been established through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, because because God did not allow his Holy One to see corruption, but brought him back and, and sat him upon the throne. And therefore, salvation is now proclaimed in the name of the risen Savior. It is no longer just a promised salvation. It is no longer just a a planned for salvation. It is now a proclaimed salvation because it is now an accomplished salvation. That's what Peter says. Our salvation is now ready to be revealed. We do not yet see it, as the author of Hebrews says. We're, We're still waiting for that day when it will be poured out in its full glory. We're still waiting for the full consummation But the salvation is accomplished. There's nothing left to do. The work of salvation is finished through Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. And again, think about what that means. It means that there is nothing we must do to save ourselves. Not only has God committed to making salvation available, but he has done everything necessary to secure it. There there is nothing that we must add to Jesus' work. His work is finished. His work is perfect. His work is complete. And it's in him that we see the full glory of the salvation that God has actually prepared for his people. The Old Testament saints had promises. They, They had shadows. But Peter tells us that not even the prophets fully understood what they were saying. In fact, even the angels longed to to see more clearly because they didn't understand. But now in Jesus, now in the resurrected Lord, we see the full glory of what God has prepared for his people. And in typical God fashion, it is a salvation far greater than anything we could have asked or imagined. We, We see it there in verse 38. Look again. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. 
So what is the sum and and substance of God's salvation? What is this salvation that is now proclaimed? It is a salvation that, that centers in the forgiveness of our sins. God is not merely establishing His kingdom on earth. He is qualifying us. He is qualifying sinners for an inheritance in that kingdom. Through Jesus, we have received adoption of sons, and as sons, we have been made heirs of God's kingdom. That is what Jesus' death and and resurrection is all about. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and was raised again for our justification so that through Him we might be heirs. Heirs of all that God is bringing to pass. Heirs of the kingdom that He is establishing on earth as it is in heaven. And understand, the law of Moses could never do that. As glorious as it was, the, the law of Moses could never qualify us Just the opposite. The law could only disqualify us. Yes, the the law is the the blueprint for for flourishing in God's kingdom. It is the blueprint for the way that that life is supposed to work. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the law was weakened by our flesh. There was nothing wrong with the law. There was something wrong with us. We couldn't keep it. We could not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Because of our corruption, because of our sin, we are all lawbreakers. We all fall short of the glory of God. But now, in Jesus, God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves through the law. He's given the forgiveness of sins. And understand that that in Jesus' economy, forgiveness is more than just the mere removal of our guilt. It's not less than that. It it includes that. Our our guilt is dealt with. The the record that is against us is nailed to the cross. Never to be used against us. But when God forgives, He does more than simply remove our guilt. Notice what He says. When God forgives, He frees us. He sets us free. In God's salvation, we are both forgiven and freed from our sin. Freed from both its guilt and its power. God's forgiveness declares us righteous, yes. But God's salvation also makes us righteous. It qualifies us for an inheritance in the coming kingdom that we might live forever to the praise of His glory. Do you see how this is far greater than the shadows of the Old Testament? Would it it be nice to live in in temporal peace and prosperity? Would it be be nice not to have to deal with with sickness and and, and with brokenness? Of, Of course. But you understand that those things would be fleeting without the forgiveness of sins. They would simply mask our our true ailment, our true sickness, our true problem. We need our sin to be dealt with. It is our sin that separates us from God. It is our our sin that brings us under judgment. It is our our sin that, that keeps us from entering into God's kingdom. And God in His grace is not only committed to to making His kingdom come, but He has committed to bringing us into it through the forgiveness of our sins secured by the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That is the salvation that God has prepared. That is the salvation that is now proclaimed in Jesus' name. That is the salvation that is on offer. 
But of course, this raises a question. If this is the salvation that God has prepared, if this is the salvation that that God now proclaims, how is it received? Well, again, we have our answer. Notice what Paul says in verse 39. This salvation is for everyone who believes. The salvation that has been secured through Jesus Christ is a salvation received by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Not mere intellectual assent. We know that. It's, it's not just agreeing to the truth of, of a few propositions about who Jesus is and what he has done, but it is recognizing the truth of who he is and entrusting ourselves to him as our Lord and Savior. It is receiving him and resting upon him for our own salvation. And Paul says, if you have done that, if you have have seen the truth of who Jesus is, and if you have rested upon him as your Savior and Lord, then you will be saved. Nothing else is required. Because God prepared this salvation. Because God is the one who has brought it to completion through his Son. Because God is the one who has now offered it to any and all who will believe. But understand, faith is required. You must receive this salvation. And that brings us just very briefly to to Paul's final word of warning. Notice what he says. Paul, knowing that that the people of God have always been a bit hard-hearted and and stiff-necked, even as Stephen said earlier in the book of Acts, he warns them, do not scoff. Do not reject God's offer. If you do, you will perish. But that is the only other option. You can receive life in Christ or you can perish apart from. There is no third way. As John says, whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. And so this is the question that Paul puts to those who were gathered there in the synagogue in Pisidia and Antioch. And it's the question that's put to us this morning. Are you a believer? Have you received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you a scoffer? Do you scoff at the idea that you even need salvation or that that salvation is available only in Christ? If you are a scoffer, Paul says, beware. Beware that, that there is coming a day when you will be called to account. And on that day, if you stand apart from Christ, you will perish. You cannot withstand God's judgment on your own. But of course, the beautiful truth is you don't have to. Because if you are a believer, if you have received and rested upon Jesus Christ, then you've been freed. You've been freed from the guilt of your sin. And you've been freed from its power. Your chains are gone. You are free to serve the Lord with gladness, both here and in the world to come forevermore. This is the glory of the salvation God has prepared and which is now proclaimed in Jesus' name. And because God has made this salvation available to any and all who believe, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you this morning thankful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you put forward as the sacrifice for our sins, that we who were justly condemned 
might instead receive your blessing, that we who were under curse might be set free, that we who were far off might be brought near, adopted as sons and made heirs of your kingdom. Father God, open our eyes to the glory of this gospel. Give us faith to believe it and bring forth its fruit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.